Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming Streamline Studios of Outlaw Radio nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. Following program produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked to the cradle to rhythm and blues. What else was I? Suckled from the... That is more than enough, by the way. No, I wanted to get into my early childhood upbringing. Yeah, why don't you get into that? Because we want to hear... Yeah, that's uh, Howard Lapidus, manager to the star, parentheses, S, close parentheses. He has more than one star now. After all these years in the industry... He was finally allowed to represent more than Paul Abdul. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> All my, right, my, I'm my, exaggerating. My, my term with Paula was uh, stellar. Yeah. Paula Stellar, I remember her. Yeah. <laughs> she used to be at Jumbo's Clown Room. Oh, Mark yeah. C.G. Boyer is here. Hello. And the excitement builds to a fever pitch. I, I believe today we have a P.J. Probe, F.W. Woolworth, uh, J.C. Petty. And, uh, by the way, just let me, while you're doing that, PJ, that, I like that PJ terrible, Probe. awful bit. Um, <laughs> Uh, you we, would we know. Are, we are, in fact, I, I would. We are, in fact, the number one, the number one true crime show in American radio. Well, in, fact, in the universe, in fact, worldwide actually. radio. Yeah. Uh huh. What, I read that so? somewhere. I know. I know you don't like me saying that because it pisses off our competitors who are, in fact, fans of ours. But that's they. They will tell you. They do. Oh, they, they often call and say, <laughs> "What is he saying? You're number two, Burrow. <laughs> yeah, they Burrow. We hate to break it to you." <laughs> In terms of our own self-esteem, we're number one. No, we're damn on number one. Yeah. I'll go one-on-one with anybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We have this Vampire Hunters and this JT Hunter. And we have one that's both. <laughs> hey, JT. Hey, Burl. How you doing? Better and better every day in every way, as Emile Coué would say. You know, he was the great French psychologist. Nutcase. Nut way? No. Nutcase. <laughs> man, oh man, we got a guest here. Oh my God! I did not say the you, guest you, you is a nutcase. No, no, no. You're embarrassing yourself. That's a, that's. Well, a good point. I was hoping to embarrass you. Man, that's, that's a that's a tough putt. <laughs> tough putts, indeed. Uh, nice try. Now here's a man, Mister Hunter. Why, oh why, would you take time out of your busy schedule of you know repairing TVs or whatever you would normally do You're for a living? Such a schmuck. <laughs> how, how did you know that? Yeah, I, I'm psychic. Uh, and write about a brilliant, genius, IQ level man who had a high security clearance, who drank blood in his spare time and raped people and videotaped it. How did this happen? Well, I uh, came across this story actually. My my father. Uh, served some time in, in the uh, sheriff's office oh. in, in Florida, in Brevard <sighs> County. He, spent, he worked there for, for a number of years, and he had heard of this. This is a pretty uh, infamous happening back there in, in that area of Florida, as you might uh, Florida might has a well-known reputation for being the weirdest place on earth. <laughs> JT, and, you know, we, we have our share, that's for sure. You know, t- things only happen uh, poorly in um, <laughs> in Germany and Florida. They're the same place, actually, if you look on the map. Oh, stop. No, I thought I thought if you lifted up New York, all the nuts rolled to West Coast. That was pretty funny. All right, let's get back to <laughs> yeah. uh, let's get back to to our, to our guest. Yeah, so I had heard of the story, and it really intrigued me the fact that this guy had uh, had been doing this. You know, he said, "Well, we we they arrested this this guy. He had picked up a girl 
and he had taken her and ended up drinking her blood. And I thought, wow, that's really, it's really a little bit more of one of, one of your unusual things is to have somebody yeah, drinking your blood. You know, so, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that really kind of gripped me. And then I started researching it a little bit and finding more and more about it. And more I found out about John Crutchley, the, the guy that came to be known as the vampire rapist, uh, the more interesting I found, and I thought, you know, this would be something that people would be interested in, in reading about. It's really a compelling story. So, well, yeah, especially uh, compelling for the young woman who uh, oh, who was hitchhiking, and uh, he picks her up, right? And uh, lovely Laura Murphy. Yeah, lovely Laura Murphy wound up bound uh, hand and foot crawling. What I. Okay, I'll let you tell what happened to her, all right? Because I don't want to steal all your thunder and your women crawling down the highway on all fours. So go ahead. Tell us. She's out hitchhiking. What happens? Okay, so, well, she wasn't actually hitchhiking is the way I, I, I learned it, is that she was out. She was walking down the street. She was walking down to the store, uh, the corner store, basically. And Crutchley was driving home, coming back home on his lunch hour. He worked um, at uh, Harris Corporation, which is a big. Uh, they do a lot of um, a lot of military contracts. Work with the Pentagon, NASA, and all those types of places. A lot actually, of a lot of a lot of top secret projects. They what do. actually? What actually did he do? He was a computer language developer and programmer. So he came up with all sorts of communication systems for different government branches, military branches. He did naval projects. He worked on projects for NASA. So he actually had top security clearance. Pretty smart, uh, guy. These Pretty places. smart, smart guy. Oh, genius. Very smart guy. Oh, yeah. yeah, he had okay. a genius level IQ. He was really, really bright. Okay. Uh, and, you know, he worked at the Pentagon for a while, um, was based out of there, and uh, worked on a lot of these kind of projects. So he was coming home from work and came across this girl, um, Christina Alma, and, and offered her a ride. And this is how he came across a lot of his his prey. He would he would find them out walking alongside the road, and he came across her on this particular day. It happened to be her her unlucky day, and offered her a ride. And you know she was a little hesitant at first, but she ended up going with him, getting in the car. And he seemed like a nice guy at first. I mean, if you look at the guy. He, he's a fairly attractive guy. You know, he certainly doesn't look like some kind of you know, hideous monster or anything. And he was well-dressed and you know, seemed to have a, a calm demeanor to him, seemed like a nice guy. So she got in the car with him, and he said, well, look, I have to, um, I'll take you where you're going, but first I have to stop by my house. Yeah. He has to stop by his house? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. he has to pick something up. She's like, okay, well, that's fine. So they go to the house. And he goes inside, and right before he goes inside, he says, hey, you want to come in for a drink? She says, oh, no, thanks. My friends are going to be expecting me. So he says, okay, I'll be out in just a second. So he goes inside the house, comes back out and says, oh, you know what? It's not in the house after all. It must be in the car. So he walks to the back of the car, gets in the back behind her. She's in the passenger seat, the front passenger seat. He gets in the car behind her. She hears him moving some things around, and then all of a sudden, wham, he, he flings the seat forward. And with her in it, so she hits her head on the the dashboard there, and is uh, you know not knocked unconscious, but she's you know not Dazed not completely thinking straight at this point. And then the next thing she knows, there's a there's a rope around her neck, choking her, and he ends up choking her out. Uh, she goes unconscious. He drags her inside the house. Next thing she knows, she wakes up. She is tied down on a 
um, countertop, kind of like an island countertop for a kitchen. Um, tied down, her legs are tied down, her hands are tied down in a spread eagle kind of way. And she's um, she sees him standing next to her. It's all dark, and she sees him standing um, beside her, and he's completely naked. And um, that's when uh, that's when all the, the vampire stuff worried. begins. Yeah. And uh, so. Did uh, he have a, a lights and a video camera set up on this thing? Yeah, he did. He had a. She noticed a. You know, this was back in the mid eighties. VHS camcorder. Or something. Yeah, so he had one of those set up on the tripod. She noticed. Uh, he was recording this, and you know, apparently, this is what he did. He rec- he started recording these uh, these encounters with these women that he would bring back there, and um, so he was he was taping it, and he ended up blindfolding her eventually, and. She felt some poking kind of feelings on her arms and legs at different spots. And then at one point she asked, well, what are you doing? And he told her he was drinking her blood and he's a vampire. Well, that, yeah, but, that but, probably made her feel more comfortable in the situation. What, what in fact, was he doing? He, was, he, had, uh, he had the um, surgical tubing and he had the, the needles and he was withdrawing her he was draining her blood out of her body using these these needles and the tubing and draining it into a you know basically a glass beaker and he would drain it into there and that's where he would drink it from he would drink it out of the beaker so how much how much blood of hers did he drink well they said that when it, when all was said and done this was done over the course of uh, you know the whole night so she was brought back to the house um, you know, early in the early in the evenings when it started, and it lasted all through the night and to the next morning. Uh, so he withdrew her blood several times during that time period. And all said, all said, when it was all done, the physicians, when she was taken to the emergency room, uh, said she had lost um, um, a lot of her blood volume, nearly forty percent of her blood volume. So if it would have uh, kept going, she probably would have died. Yeah, they said the the physician, the emergency room physician there said that if she had not received medical treatment within, you know, a matter of hours that she would have died. So now she managed to escape from this, which I find fascinating. Yes, she did. She was actually very lucky to be able to do that. How'd she get, how did she get out of there? Well, he had her handcuffed and he had her ankle shackled and he he had to go back to work. So this was um, in the middle of the, the middle of the lunch hour when he first got her. And um, he had to go back to the office that afternoon, so he put her in a bathtub in the bathroom, left her there handcuffed and shackled, and said, hey, if you make any noise in here, my brother is going to hear it, and he's going to come in here and kill you. So she was, you know, obviously very frightened about that. She, you know... Didn't uh, didn't know if he was telling the truth or not, but you know you kind of in that situation had to believe him. So she uh, she she didn't make a whole lot of noise, and plus having her blood drawn, you know she was kind of in and out of consciousness and not in her right mind. Um, so he left her there, went back to work, and um, the, the the second time that he ended up doing that, when he came back, she had escaped, and the way she escaped was she managed to pull herself up out of the tub and saw the bathroom window and it was you know it was a smaller window and it was these type of windows that they have the locking mechanism on both sides of the window and you have it's one of those ones where you have to push the lock in on each side so you really you have to use two hands so you push one in on each side toward each other and that's what 
uh, opens the window, and then you can push it up, push the window up. And it turned out that one of those locks, one of the locking mechanisms on that window was broken. So if it had not been broken, she would not have been able to open the window because she was handcuffed. So it would have been impossible for her to have a hand on each side of that window to do it. So she could only have her hands on one side of it. So fortunately for her and for untold numbers of other women who would have been his future victims, um, just the one lock worked, so she was able to push that one in, lift the window up, and uh, pull herself up, squish her, squeeze herself through that window, that narrow opening, and, you know, fall out the, the other side of it. And, and um, what, I, what amazes me is, okay, she gets out the window, and then she's crawling, because her, her, her hands are shackled, or her legs are shackled, she's not wearing a lot of clothes, she's crawling on all fours down a high five, or whatever the, the, the road is. <laughs> Yeah, she's, yeah, you know, at this point, she's, a variety of trucks and cars drive by this naked woman on all fours crawling down the highway, and they don't stop. Pearl. Wrapped in no, no. Pearl. Look, there's a naked woman on all fours Pearl, on the side Pearl. of the road. Sure, honey. Pearl, who, who hasn't seen that? <laughs> Finally, someone goes, maybe this is one of those roadside tourist attractions. <laughs> Stops and helps no, her no, out, was, for God's sake. She was shackled? Yeah. Somehow? Well, you know, it is Florida, so... Yeah, they went, oh, yep, that's the other way to Disneyland. We all have shackles. <laughs> yes. But she was, she was shackled to the front, the back, how, how, how yeah, was she? Yeah, well, yeah, she, she had her hands were handcuffed, and then she had the, uh, the shackles on the, on the ankles, too. Uh-huh. So, so she couldn't and she was still And she was completely naked oh, at this point. She did, grab, she did grab a small towel on the way out of the bathroom. Of the bathroom hey, Matt, bed. how did you know? All right, you keep going. So she, she's, she falls out of the window the other side into the, into the lawn, and she, you know, she's, uh, she's doing the best she can trying to get through there. She ends up on the, on the road. The road um, by the house was not a paved one. It was a dirt road. Oh. And so she ends up there hobbling down the road the best she can um, with, uh, with the shackles on her, on her legs and the towel covering her a little bit. But, yeah, so one, uh, one truck eventually comes, and, you know, she's obviously hopeful trying to flag it down. Um, and there's two women in the, in the truck. And she said they just kind of looked at her, slowed down a little bit, and then just kept going. They didn't stop. Um, so that obviously um, that must obviously have really crushed her. her. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, right. the whole time she's, she, she has no idea when this guy is going to suddenly appear and grab her again. You know, when she, when's, when's he going to find out she's missing and come back and, and get her again? So uh, luckily, though, uh, there was a, uh, another truck ended up coming eventually, and it was um, a guy that lived not too far from the house she escaped from, not too far from Crutchley's house. And um, he was driving down. He saw her, and he said when he first saw her alongside the road, he thought maybe this was some kind of strange game the kids were playing nowadays or something. You know? So he, he wasn't going to stop at first. He drove past her. Um, but then he, he did something made him end up stopping. He stopped and came back and, and helped her and said, do you really need help? And she said, yes. And he said, this isn't a game. Is this a game or do you need help? And she said, yes, I need help. So she, uh, she told him she had escaped and what had happened to her. And so he put her in the truck and, and drove her to his house and called the, uh, called the authorities. And just as he, as he put her in the truck and they just, as they started driving away, she pointed at the house she had escaped from and said, remember that house, remember that house. And uh, that's how Crutchley ended up being uh, caught and being arrested. How, how much, uh, JT, how, how much strength did she have at that point? I, I, and, why, and why did he take her to his house and not the hospital? 
Um, I, you know, I don't know why he took it to his house. I guess because it was the closest, and he, you know, he, he he wasn't quite sure what to do with her in the situation. But um, she was certainly very weak. He said she looked very very pale, as you might imagine, having so much blood um, sure. loss. That's my point. And uh, it looked kind of like a ghost, basically. She was so white. Um, but he but he took her there. They called the he called nine one one or the equivalent, and uh, the uh, you know the ambulance came and uh, took her to the hospital, and then the police met her at the hospital. How do we get past? Now we know where he lives, and we know what he did. How do we get past victim one to, to more victims? Well, you know they did a lot of digging, obviously during the investigation, and um, came to find out a, a lot of things. And, and he had um, he had been a prime suspect in a case back when he lived in the Washington, D.C. Metro, metropolitan area. He had been a prime suspect there in, in Virginia in the disappearance and murder of a, of a young woman there. And he had actually been the been dating her. He had met her about two or three weeks before she actually disappeared is when he first met her, and they started dating. And uh, she disappeared, and uh, her body was... She was missing for quite a while, and they, they ended up finding her body months later. Um, by then, it but, was... Uh, you know, late, no, no evidence and, to link him to that, uh, to that big crime. No, I mean, he. the last time she was seen was going to his house um, that night that she disappeared. That was the last time anybody saw her. And um, they, uh, they gave, ended up giving him a, a lie detector test after that, and he failed a lot of the lie detector tests and a lot of, a lot of key questions dealing with did he know where she was? Did she walk out of his house that night? Did he harm her? These sort of questions. He, all, uh, he failed on all those. It indicated that he was not telling the truth on any of those, those questions. And um, he ended up also, they ended up finding, her name was Debbie Fitzjohn, and he ended up finding, the law enforcement ended up finding her um, Bible among his belongings, uh, you know, as one of his um, his trophies. These serial killers oftentimes like to keep mementos of their victims, you know, trophies. Yeah, I want to go on this. The crime scene investigation seems a little bit peculiar, and we'll get to that right after we take a 60-second break. We'll be right back with J.T. Hunter, our special guest on True Crime Uncensored. I was walking down the street when out the corner of my eye. I saw a pretty little thing approaching me She said, i never seen a man who looks so all alone Could you use a little company? If you pay the right price, your evening will be nice And you can go and send me on my way I said, you're such a sweet young thing Why you do this to yourself? She looked at me and this is what she said Oh, there ain't no rest for the wicked Money don't grow on trees If you own a cell phone, and we know you do, or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you're no longer tied to your computer. You're now safe to roam while Barstow's burning, and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio, Demons of Decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week. Now available free at RadioLoyalty.com. Just punch in Outlaw Radio. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear. I host this program on Outlaw Radio. And when I'm not doing that... 
I sit and stare at the computer going, what the hell am I going to write next? But <laughs> before I reach that point of desperation, I actually write them. And every once in a while, we recycle them. Right now, Man Overboard, the counterfeit resurrection of Phil Champagne, the 20th anniversary special edition. Yes, if it was good enough for you 20 years ago, it's even better today. Because I didn't have to work too hard to put out the special edition. It has bonus material, just like a Criterion DVD. Uh, even a new afterword by Phil Champagne, the man who died and liked it so much he stayed alive. Yes, a dead man who knew how to party with booze, bronze, and a bag full of bogus bills. Man Overboard, the counterfeit resurrection of Phil Champagne by Burl Bear, by several copies today. And then by JT's book, because, uh, you know, the two go well together. Vampires and dead people. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. To true crime uncensored. Yes, good idea. Who's on that show? <laughs> With Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. Always about, a pleasure uh, to be here. What's uh, his quick, name over quick here? question. Wait a second. We got one more name to put in. Well, it. we'll get to it right now. <laughs> I guess we won't. Featuring Gee. Mark C.G. Boyer. Yeah, that's him right, right, right over there. And uh, the, the, the lady with the enormous hooters. She doesn't come anymore, no. so to speak. So so, so my question to you is this. Uh, we'll get to JT in a second. Hang on, JT. Um, what, if somebody buys this 20th edition of A Man Overboard, yeah. what actually do they get that they didn't get 20 years ago? They have a brand new introduction by Burl Bear. Right. They get bonus material. They get a transcript of the Fed's actual bonus. interrogation of Phil Champagne. That that's wasn't the, the, that's the bonus material. Right and then court documents, uh, warrants, an afterward by Phil, some new photos. Great photo of Phil with some showgirls in Vegas. <laughs> I'm still trying to find a way to... Buy <laughs> to the, justify buying the book? Yeah, you got it. And I'm, I'm maybe, it's, I, the book was really good the first time. It's even better now. Uh, JT, how do we get a hold of your book? Uh, Amazon's the best way to get it. It's on Amazon.com. Title uh, of the book is? The Vampire Next Door, The mm. True Story of the Vampire Rapist. So, Burrow, go ahead. Okay, Vampire Rapist. Now, when the chick escapes out, she crawls out the, the bathroom windows to see Joe Cocker's concert. She's out the oh, door. Jesus. <laughs> Down the highway. Truck driver picks her up, takes her home, calls 911 hospital, comes, gets her in an ambulance. The cops go out there to uh, the house that we remember, and they go through this search. They find the, uh, the video camera. They find a stack of credit cards, several inches thick, and a collection of women's necklaces. They don't document this. They don't take it. They don't catalog it. They do a second search. By then, this stuff is gone. How the hell does this happen? Yeah, you know, I, I don't quite understand what some of the things that were done or weren't done, why they were or weren't. I know the, uh, the credit cards you mentioned in particular that they had seen the first time, and then they disappeared uh, between that, that initial search and the next time they went in there on a subsequent search. Oh, and, and now he, the guy who lived in that house, this credit card guy, he had a chance to get rid of that stuff, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They had, had quite a bit of time between I those. guess this wasn't the crack CSI team that you see on TV. It's Florida, bro. Oh, that's right. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, the other thing is, though, you got to understand, they didn't really have any reason to suspect him as a serial killer at that point. 
you know, they were they were treating the case, and you know, reasonably so at, at right. that particular point in time, they were treating it as a rape case, um, and uh, they the didn't blood, the blood drinking part. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously that was very strange. That was very peculiar. It was not something that uh, you come up against that often or you hear about that often. So it was certainly lended a, a strange element to it. But, I mean, still, if you kind of try to take yourself back and put yourself in their shoes at that time, I mean, just because that happened, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh, we have a serial killer on our hands here. We need to... But we got a something on our hands that we can't let yeah. yeah, but it's not illegal yeah. to drink blood. It's not? Yeah. No. How about, how about if it's consensual, no, it's no, not. No, yeah, but it wasn't consensual. Well, yeah, but you cannot uh, stick, they could debate that all they want. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to debate anything. You cannot <laughs> stick something into somebody's veins, drain their blood, and start drinking it. Can't do it. Oh, well, yeah, I think he can't. Physically, it's an interesting concept because I was taught, perhaps erroneously, that human beings can't drink human blood. It makes them barf. Then your body will reject you trying to drink blood. Is that right? Apparently not with this guy. No. Yeah, it was kind of like he got used to hand abuse. Okay, but 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 she says she 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 said that she told the cops that this happened, right, JT? Right. Yeah. 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 She it's went through in, in detail, and she was able to describe the interior of the house, and you know where he took her and what he did to her, and it all matched up when they went in there. Her description was was spot on. And the, house the, and was there. the blood had to go somewhere. Yeah, it's true. She didn't bleed herself. But it kind of, it's kind of a he said, she said on whether or not it was consensual. Oh, man. No, I'm not saying it was consensual. I'm saying who it would says- turn into be a... Because there are people who are into, you know, the uh, S&M, AFL-CIO. But an EIEIO, by the way. But but the the question I have is, No. <laughs> now they you, talked to his you wife. You he'd, he'd had wives, and his wife, his second wife, was into this stuff with him. And uh, when she spoke to the press, and uh, she saw kind of like the the kinky kind of stuff, and the handcuffed girl, she said she called it a gentle rape, devoid of any overt brutality. Oh, just a second now. Oh, come on. There's nothing like a gentle JT, rape. JT, what's a gentle rape when you drink? I don't know. Ask some senator. How do they let this guy out of the, the jail? Yeah, I mean, that's the that was the another one of the crazy things with the case is he ended up getting sentenced to 25 years. And the way Florida's um, statutes were then as far as serving time and the ability to earn game time, a, a huge chunk of that ended up coming off. He was able to work off uh, 15 years of that. He only ended up serving 10 years of the 25-year sentence um, before he came up for uh, for parole and was released on parole. And as you might imagine, it caused a huge, huge uh, uproar in the in the communities there in Florida when they got wind that he was going to be getting released, that this guy was going to be getting released. Nobody wanted him. He, uh, he at first he wanted to try to go back to where he was from, which was West Virginia, but the West Virginia authorities refused to take him, wouldn't let him come there, and the uh, Department of Corrections in Florida had to really uh, frantically scamper around trying to find some place to, to that would take him, and you know they eventually found a place in Orlando. Mark Boyer has a question. Well, hi, this Mark. Um, I was wondering. What uh, happened to Laura? And, you know, the fact that she physically survived is, you know, immaterial to the rest of her life, you know. Well, if she hadn't survived, she wouldn't have the rest of her life. Well, you know, you could be permanently scarred. Well, yeah, she probably had PTSD and the fear of needles. What happened to her? 
you're talking about the girl that escaped. Yeah, yeah Chris, Christina, Christina Alma. Yeah, she was referred to, I think, as Laura Murphy in, yes. in, in another account. Um, and, and, you know, frankly, I used a fictitious name for her in the story, too, just to protect her identity. But um, she, uh, you know, she she had a lot of psychological issues with it. Yeah. As, as she didn't be surprised. And she lived with her parents for a long time because she was afraid to be alone after this. And, you know, she was basically kind of living as a, in a self-imposed uh, seclusion, exile, yeah, as a, as a hermit almost. And um, she did eventually marry um, and uh, was able to, to do that. And, um, you know, I'm sure that, <clears throat> I'm sure she had to work through a lot of things with the husband yeah. as well. well. Let's talk about conversation on the first date. I mean, <laughs> yeah. 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 tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Wait, hold on a second. Hold on. Yeah. Well, I want to stay on this get back to something that we were talking about. He pled guilty on the kidnapping and the rape charges in exchange for prosecutors dropping the grievous bodily harm charge for taking the blood. Now, during the sentencing, the blood issue came up, and he claimed to have been introduced to blood drinking by a nurse that he was stripping back in uh, 1970, you know, for sexual purposes. But he said he didn't drink it because it coagulated too soon, and he couldn't get it down. So they didn't take that into consideration. Did they find the nurse? They, they, even, oh, they found his, his wife, uh, his ex-wife, who didn't take the stand. But if I'm correct, she told reporters that her husband wasn't guilty. That was her, So the ex-wife said, all is well in the blood drinking? Yeah, he says he's, so he's just a kinky hell, sort of guy. What the hell did he have to do to really piss her off to divorce him? Well, I guess <laughs> she was the wrong blood type. I guess. <laughs> My God. Yeah, this this second wife, she was very submissive, uh, which is why he married her. I mean, that's yeah, the type of that's the type of personality he needed. Uh, someone that would you know jump whenever he said so, and that's yeah, what yeah, the second yeah. wife was like. So we're talking was, about a whole a, Rolling Stones but collection. There was, a, there was another tidbit here on his uh, his agreement, uh, his guilty plea. Um, uh, there was a very interesting uh, uh, interviewing technique that the detectives used uh, to talk to him. And I found that fascinating. Yeah, you're familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah, well, they had, uh, the FBI got involved. Um, Robert Ressler, who was, I'm sure you're familiar with, he was a pioneer in the FBI's um, program there in in Quantico for behavioral sciences and, uh, you know, coined the the term serial killer and interviewed uh, a lot of uh, famous serial killers over the years, had a lot of knowledge about that. He got involved in the case. Uh, came down for the sentencing trial after Crutchley pled guilty to these counts, as you mentioned. Um, and Ressler came down and testified uh, about Crutchley and testified that Crutchley met the criteria for being an organized serial killer. He uh, he met a lot of the a lot of the characteristics associated with that, and um, ended up. Uh, you know, helping out a lot as far as the, uh, the the sentencing, the basis for the sentencing went. And, uh, you know, including that, um, you know, he had average to above average intelligence, um, socially competent, able to pass himself off as normal to society. See, that's where I fail. <laughs> leading, leading, lead, you know, leading yeah. these two lives, basically. Which is another fascinating thing about Crutchley, because he, he seemed to have so much going for him and um, had a nice family, a nice house, and all these sorts of things. And yet here he had these... This, this completely, um, completely hidden other side, uh, dark side. So well, you, I was, you say nice family, kids and stuff? Well, he didn't exactly have a lot of friends growing up. 
No, not as a not as a youth. Not, not when he was not when he was younger. He had um, he had a, a, a interesting childhood too. His um, his mother had really wanted him to be a girl. Oh yeah, talk yeah, about he, this. He, this is weird. He, yeah, he had a he had an older sister before he was born who died before he was born. And um, after that, his mother was just devastated by it, and she really wanted another girl. And so when, when Crutchy was born, being a boy, um, she, she was, was obviously pissed. disappointed with that and dressed him as a, as a girl for the first four or five years of his life. She dressed him as a girl, treated him as a girl, told him over and over again she'd wished he was a girl. Um, well, it would be better to be a girl, these sorts of things. Geez. And, you know, you're, you're two, three, four years mom. old. This is, this is bound to have an impact on your, your psychological development, your, your sense of self, um, your identity. Yeah, and, great uh, self-image. Yeah. Uh, JT, was there any evidence of blood drinking in the joint? Uh, I never came across anything as far as that went, no. I think he he seemed to keep a pretty low profile in prison. Um, there was testimony about him being, a, you know, essentially a model inmate, except for a, a couple um, mishaps. But um, he was, for the most part, a, a pretty well-behaved inmate. And, uh, you know, that explains also how he was able to, to earn that so much game time to get out so early. Well, we're um, going to explain the... Bizarre reason that he was three strikes, you're out, and got life. When we come back after a little 60-second break, a true crime uncensored. This is Zach Gustine, and if you own a cell phone, and we know you do, or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now safe to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio app from RadioLoyalty.com. The smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your cell phone or Apple device is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends on Outlaw Radio. You know the demons of decadence. Change the way you listen to radio seven days a week now available free at radioloyalty.com just punch in outlaw radio see that mark you stay on script yes of course burl bearer i've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds and i'm roger moore i didn't supply the microphone Welcome back to True Crime Uncensored, produced by Magic Matt Adel on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary Burl Bear, world-famous, handsome, charming, modest true crime writer. Yes, you are. Yeah. And that's Howard Lapidus, manager of the star, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact-checker, who's amazed, amused, aghast, the dog, and thunderstruck. That's correct. <laughs> by, by this guy getting to three strikes where we could only count two. So we gotta got to ask you, Jay, well, we're missing one. We're missing a conviction somewhere. Uh, well, what else did he ever get busted for? I'm, I'm sorry, bro. What did you say? What else did he get busted for? We're going to talk about how we got three strikes for smoking pot, but well, what's the other arrest? They they got him on this uh, kidnapping and rape. They got mm-hmm. him for smoking pot. What's the third one? Uh, well, they had the they had added in there the theft of blood charge, but I think they they ended up um, dropping that as part of the plea agreement with him. Yeah, well, what we're trying to do is figure out where the intermediate conviction was to get three strikes. 
Maybe there was Maybe well, no. They, he just he, he only had the he had the one arrest in the Christina Olin case. He had that arrest and the charges associated with that. Right, and, and uh, he violated parole with the marijuana. Right, and then he went back in for that. Right, yeah, and but they put him way, in for life for that. But the demon. Yep, yep, because yeah, they did. They did because of the. Uh, for well, it's in the book the, the judge's reasons for doing that, but you know a lot of it had to do with the uh, the, the factual findings in that original case. Uh, with, so in other you know, words, they, the, they 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 messed with the law. He really didn't have three strikes. They just pretended he did so they could put him away. Yeah, he didn't have three strikes as far as um, three different um, offenses. Um, that's uh, that's as far what as that it, goes. That's what but, I mean. There was such a there was such a huge community uproar about this, and and I mean, frankly, the way the whole thing went down, I, I found it to be pretty peculiar. Yes, um, it seems very odd to me that the guy was in there, and uh, you know, the night before he's going to get released, he uh, he smokes pot. You know, he has a, supposedly has this, uh, this this party in the cell there. Uh, and then you know test positive for it the day the day he's released and then goes back oh, in and then in, ends up being in there for life. Yeah, here's that. the rationale: <laughs> violation of his parole resulted in the sentence of life imprisonment if he gets gets life for smoking pot. Right. Uh, January 17, 31st, rather ninety seven under the three strikes law. This was his third conviction. This is how they reasoned it. I just found this. First two were for the kidnapping. That's one, and the rape. They counted the two charges as if they were two convictions. Oh, okay. Well, there you go, then. Well, that's yeah. how they did it. So, but a serial killer. Uh, they figure. Guy, this is not his only day at the beach. Yeah, they, 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 they turned up a lot of other evidence. When they went in and searched his office at Harris Corporation, they went in there and they found the driver's license, the voter registration card, um, some other personal identification documents, from a woman who was missing from the the area there in Florida, um, and uh, they never did find her body, but they found all that. And he admitted um, he later admitted coming into contact with her and giving her a ride, just as he had given Christina Alma. And uh, he had you know a pretty um, unbelievable explanation as to why he had all her personal documentation in his office. So they found that, and they found some other um, items um, indicating that they'd been taken from other women. Um, they had the, the case in Virginia, which I told you about, which he was the, the leading suspect in. They could just never get a direct um, tie sufficient to support um, you know, taking it to the, to the grand jury. Um, and uh, speaking of documents, in addition to having documents from the alleged, his alleged victims... This guy had a top-level security clearance. They also found a great deal of highly classified information regarding naval weaponry and communications. Now, was the FBI, I believe, was uh, Department of Justice, or someone was considering launching espionage charges against him? Yeah, there was uh, the 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 arresting um, the officer, the officer, the detective in charge of the case. Um, Bob Leatherow, who, who I worked very closely with in this book and helped out a lot in, in gathering a lot of this information and getting me in touch with witnesses, uh, he was really expecting there to be a, some sort of espionage charge um, coming down the, the, the pipeline there, but it never did. Um, I wonder who, uh, if, if that was true, I'm wondering if that were true, I wonder who he was perhaps intending to uh, sell it to. Yeah, I don't know as far as that goes, but he he certainly had a lot of material that he should not have had, uh, including 
including satellite photographs of the naval fleet, submarines in the area of the Middle East, and a lot of uh, a lot of other documentation relating what, to that that what, he should not have. What had. was he doing with that stuff? Why did he have the? Why did he collect that stuff? Well, he wasn't supposed it? to have it. No, of course not. But but why did he have it? Why, what what drew him to steal it? Well, I mean that's the question. He had a history of stealing from his employers, uh, tracing clips. tracing back you know over the years. He, this has been something he'd been he doing. Why why he was taking these particular things? That's the question. Um, was he was he intending on on trying to sell that to to somebody? I don't know, but he certainly had it all there. What uh, what what drew your passion to this whole case and to write a book about it? Well, I mean, as I said, it, when I heard the basic facts of it, it just it seemed like such a a peculiar case to begin with. Uh, the type of case that would kind of grab your attention. It grabbed my attention, and the more I researched it and dug into it, the more interesting it, it became because of you know not just the not just the vampire aspect, the blood drinking aspect, but also the the um, the aspect of Crutchley's ability to, to inhabit these two different worlds at the same time. Well, that makes and, perfect sense. I mean, the compartmentalization is, is typical not only of, of psychopaths, sociopaths, but even rock and roll disc jockeys. Uh, <laughs> as I've often said, if it weren't for for a double life, I'd have no life at all. Uh, well, we all we all really we all really have you know different different lives. We all lead different lives to different extents. Um, but of course, in this case, it was you know just just magnified and, and, and you know out there exponentially as to his his deceptiveness as to his you know inner nature. Have, I wonder if he could have launched a civil suit against his mother for screwing him up so bad. Oh, but she was long gone. Uh, but at this point, it's moot. Yeah, moot. Uh, but you J- think that this J- guy is brilliant. There's He's no, born there's, brilliant. There's no such thing, though, JT, as vampires, right? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, the, I think Ressler actually testified about that a little bit at the at the hearing about, you know, well, the sort of person that would that would be doing this sort of thing, you know, back in the old days or medieval times or back then, you know, it would be attributed to this kind of supernatural vampire. Right, but there really so they, is, they had people doing the same sort of thing back then. You know, they may have been serial killers doing the same sort of thing back then, and they were attributed as well, these supernatural the, creatures. The, the, the supernatural part comes actually from extreme anemia. In case you were unaware of this, uh, in cases of extreme anemia, the gums recede, making the canine teeth appear longer. Also, become uh, uh, very light sensitive, and uh, the bright light of daytime uh, causes pain to the eyes. And interestingly enough, in extreme anemia, it also causes revulsion, extreme revulsion at the smell of garlic, which is why the whole thing with the garlic warding off vampires. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the old days, when people were suffering from that form of extreme anemia they were pale their teeth looked longer and it couldn't stay garlic they couldn't so, go out in the daytime so so where are they now they're dead um actually no they're they're in pacoima <laughs> yeah that's right do we of course crutchley's crutchley's uh need for the blood wasn't this more this this physical need to drink it, it, it was, was sexual more, psychological he, yeah i mean it was a power thing for him the ability to have this control over another human being control their life um, you know, this is how he how he killed his victims is by choking. And them. you notice he did it with women, not with men. Right. I think he had all, all sorts of issues regarding women because it's, of his upbringing. It's the same reason you order a female lobster. Do you do that? Yes. And how do you know the difference? Because they you lift up the skirt. <laughs> 
<laughs> you lift up the skirt. Yeah, and that's a skirt steak. Exactly right. No, it's a, it's a, it's tender and sweeter. And that, but that's the. But know. he's draining the women of their power, and I think this relates back to mother. Let's open a motel. Yeah, Whoa. yeah, Bates, Bates, yeah, Psycho, for sure. Yeah, psycho reference, ladies and gentlemen. That's, That's right. right. When, uh, Mother. when he was in uh, prison, uh, one of his uh, uh, fellow inmates, uh, Patrick, kept, Patrick the, Dantel, yeah. Yeah, kept mm-hmm. the journal. What kind of juicy stuff was in there? Yeah, he kept a pretty detailed account of things, uh, his daily life there in the, in the prisons. And, you know, it started well before he met Crutchley, but he continued doing it after he met Crutchley. And, he, uh, I got a hold of this thing, and he had a lot of entries and information about there about what Crutchley was was telling him while he was in there, and uh, about about his past, his first victims, things you know, things he had done, how he had gotten rid of bodies, and uh, Dantel, you know, really uh, really became disturbed by it, and he, you know, he he wrote in his, his diary that this guy is 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 more dangerous than Bundy, and. Uh, wow. Ted Bundy, you know, and, and had a uh, such a prolific killing history, and uh, he really he really became disturbed by it, and you know went to the uh, the authorities to to let them know what was going on. But prior um, prior to his uh, his guilty plea, um, there was an option for uh, uh, a plea bargain uh, for information on the victims. Um, what happened with that? Yeah, so the the story with this uh, this plea plea opportunity that that um, was lost, um, and this actually goes back to what uh, one of you all mentioned earlier about this uh, this interviewing of him, where they had um, based on a suggestion from Ressler and the other FBI folks, they put Crutchley in a in a room, and they had boxes in there with names of the different missing women um, from the area there that he was linked to, uh, you know, including um, including um, Volansky, who was the one who had, he had all the, um, you know, the, the ID forms in his office. So they had all these boxes in there of all these missing women that they suspected him and were linking him to, and uh, the names of the victims on there so he could see them. And one of the boxes they had slightly open, and they had some... Um, some of the remains sticking out the human the victim's bones because you know they were finding they were finding these skeletal remains all over the county of these women right um and disposed you know, they, of they, in a they, common they, manner i'm sorry disposed of in a common or in a uh um in a, in a similar manner right exactly yeah there were very uh very similar um ways that these bodies were uh found the conditions were the same the types of areas they were being found in were very similar uh you know it's all it's all gone into in more detail in the book but yeah it was very very similar ways they were finding these things and so they had all these uh boxes in there they they brought him into this room and sat him down there and the um, the rationale for this was you know when confronted by this in the past the FBI had found um, particularly with uh, in cases of um, uh, sexual predators, um, that when you put them in a room faced with this identify, identifying information or victims, you know, showing them basically you, you know what they've done, sort of thing. That when confronted with this, a lot of times they will be overwhelmed. They'll you know break down and admit, yeah, I did this and this is how I did it. So they were hoping this was going to happen with Crutchley. It didn't happen with him. He he clammed up. Uh, did not did not talk. Refused to talk. 
but it did it did impact him and um as a result of that he ended up um going to his attorney and saying look i don't i don't want to get the death penalty i want to cut a deal so the what what had happened is his attorney contacted one of the um sheriff's officers though that he had had a you know professional relationship with over the years and said look my client's willing to cut a deal he's willing to admit to a number of killings he's willing to um give up the bodies lead you to the burial sites for them um and all this sort of thing and he was going to admit to uh, to 12 12 killings in in the florida in florida there and um you know, as a re- in exchange for not having the death penalty. And, and, uh, <clears throat> let me finish here. I want to hear what happens. So go ahead. So the the sheriff's officer who I got this information um, took it in to said called up the state attorney said, "Look, this is what's what's happening here. He's willing to give up the the twelve murders, lead us to the bodies, and all this sort of thing." And the state attorney who was out of town said, great, I'll be on the next flight in the morning, you know, good, good job. Uh, so the next day he comes into the, the office there and um, there was a, a more, um, a, a higher up officer there at the sheriff's office who was not included in these discussions. And he had a uh, history of not wanting to work with um, criminals, cutting deals with them, he preferred to have the detectives work up the case on their own and then, you know, bring bring the evidence forward that way. He didn't like cutting deals with them. It's kind of like this, we won't negotiate with terrorists kind of thing. And uh, so he, when he got wind of what happened, he kind of flipped his lid and said, you know, hell no, we're not going to do this. We're, we're, we're not going to accept this. We'll, we'll get the evidence ourselves, and then we can go after him for a more severe penalty. We can go after him for the death penalty if we want. So he said, no, we're not going to do it. And so he, he, the whole deal fell through because of that. And, uh, you know, I heard, I actually heard fairly recently from someone who knew this guy, and he said he really regretted that decision. He said he went oh, to yeah. his grave uh, really regretting doing that because oh, yeah, as a result of that. They could have closed it, those cases. Exactly. Yeah. They, could have, they could have brought closure to a lot of the a lot of those victims' families because uh, a lot of those victims' bodies were never found. They were never found. Um, and uh, he, he said, yeah, he said he regretted it um, the rest of his life and went, went, to his, went to his grave regretting it. Um, and it's really a shame, you know, they, they, you know, looking, looking at it from, you know, the perspective of a researcher coming along, you know, after the fact, it certainly was a great opportunity to, to bring a lot of closure on a lot of matters that they, that they gave up. And, um, you know, it, 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 it was that largely, there was also, I think there was also a little bit of a personal, um, antagonism between a couple of the yeah, officers involved there. And, uh, yep, positions yep. of authority and that. Yep. I guess you can say, I don't know if he died happy or not, but he died having an orgasm. Yeah. Well, at least that's what the, what the report is. Yeah. What's, he, what's your thoughts, you know? Was, well, was his my, my uh, thought is that's demise first, that's, first, that's, that's first prize, Mark. <laughs> what? First prize is to die having an orgasm. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, especially you you're making you love on a pile of money. At the same time. There you go. Um, so what's your take? Uh, was, was, was his demise assistant? Was he his sister? Yeah, you know, I found the thing a, a bit suspicious just because it just seemed odd to me that um, he had been in prison for so long and, and, you know, if he was so experienced with this sort of thing, this, uh, this auto... Uh, Erotica. Yeah, if he was so 
familiar with this for this to happen at this particular time just seems strange to me but um, you know I talked to different people involved in it and some of them think maybe you know maybe somebody helped them do this um, you know when I say helped them means you know they, they did it for him um, made sure he wasn't going to survive the thing but um, I never got any uh, you know solid uh, information or evidence one way or another how old was he at that uh, point Oh geez, um, he was up there. I mean, he was. Um, in his, this was two thousand and. Well, yeah, two thousand two, March thirtieth. So forty six. Yeah. He was born in forty six. So he was up there. Yeah, uh, sixties. He, he, he was older, um, but uh, you know the people that are experienced with this, they usually have some sort of mechanism, you know, a fail-safe mechanism to, to make sure that yeah, well, they don't, they don't die during it, right? Um, and so you would you have to wonder well why didn't he have that? I mean, well, yeah, but then again, the uh, the singer from NXS died the same way. Uh, Mr. Carradine allegedly died the same way. Yeah. They didn't have any fail safe. Uh, yeah, a young man from my office did. Really, yeah. same thing. Yeah, same. not at the office, I hope. No. So you know, so you know, it could have been in, in that vein. It could have been a suicide. Um, they ruled it an accidental death, but it could have been a suicide. You know, his mother his mother had passed away about a month a month a month before that. His mother died, and he found that out. And you know, he had such a strange relationship with her that uh, maybe when she died, you know, maybe he felt like he needed to follow her. Um, you know, they ended up having their they're actually their their ashes are right next to each other. Um, amazing, absolutely amazing. Hey, listen, I hope everyone buys your book, The Vampire Next Amazon. Door. Yeah. And we love your hat. Yeah, and a man that makes me appear to be a big right wing wacko. Yeah, that's hard to do. A hundred year old Professor Irwin Corey coming up on Outlaw Radio. What's next, bro? Magic Van Allen, Demons of Decadence, and Professor Irwin Corey from Beyond the Crates. Outlaw Radio. Vision, dreams of passion. And all the while, I think of you. A very strange reaction. The more I see, the more I do. Baby, tell nobody. 